Welcome to the Pendulum Insight Podcast. This is a show for deal makers in the blockchain business, where we meet the players who are changing the game today and get their insight into everything from the red tape to the raise. This is your host, Colton Moffitt. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We've got David Lancashire, the founder of Sato, and he's here today to tell us about their project. And basically, it's a terabyte level blockchain. And Sato moves email, social networks, payment channels, and more to the blockchain. So, David, thanks for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, why you got into the blockchain economy, and the problem that Sato solves? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll start with myself. Um, I, one interesting thing is the project is kind of coming out of China, uh, but it's sort of an expat-oriented project. Uh, I got involved in uh, economics and political science, was a grad student background also in computer science. Um, got involved in the blockchain community here in about 2012-2013, and uh, the idea behind Sado uh, basically came in the spring of 2017. Um, and it was following about two years of exposure to the, you know, what's now the Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Core debate over how do you actually scale the blockchain? What are the problems? Um, a really, really vibrant Bitcoin community in China at the time. Um, and, you know, when the idea basically came uh, of this is how we can actually solve it, um, it became the thing that kind of I had to do. Um, and so we, my co-founder Richard joined us in December 2017. Uh, we started a fundraise process in March or so, and we just finished that last month. So with the project, we're moving towards public testnet, uh, hopefully in one or two months, um, at which point people in the public can start deploying applications and using the network for the things that we know it can do. That's awesome. Congratulations. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the high-level thing. Um, I guess the interesting thing is it's fascinating talking to people about Sato because it's a very different kind of project, and the way it even thinks about what the scaling issues are is very different from uh, if you look at you know, the Bitcoin developer community or the Ethereum developer community. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what kind of questions do you have at the top level? Maybe we can... Sure. So I'm, I'll be curious in the, in, later in the call to talk about kind of how your education and background and the political and economic sort of frame of reference is guiding the way that you're developing this project. But right now I want to go over some of the things I saw in your white paper to make sure Mm -hmm. that I and the listeners understand really what you guys are doing. So you'd identified some of your key innovations as transient blockchain, proof of transactions, cascading signed fees, and golden ticket. If you could tell us more about what those are, how they interact, and, and how they're helping solve that scaling issue. Yeah, sure. Um, what I'd suggest we do before we get onto those specific things, though, is maybe take a step back and uh, revisit scaling and look at what the actual problems are. Sure. Um, one of the things that happens in the scaling debate and the scaling discussion is people think that we're dealing with a technical problem. Mm-hmm. Um, they think we're dealing with, well, how do we increase capacity while also keeping the network decentralized? 
And one of the reasons that scaling approaches are trapped in what uh, Vitalik has called the scalability trilemma, like, you know, the idea that you can't do one thing without sacrificing something else, is people are treating scaling as a technical problem instead of an economic problem. Mm. And so to explain those, maybe the best and easiest way to understand is to step back and say, well, what are the economic problems? Um, because people don't even often conceptualize them properly. Mm-hmm. And there are two. Uh, the first economic problem is in economics, it would be described as a tragedy of the commons problem. And this is related to, uh, you know, blockchain bloat. The fact that um, miners at any point in time in Bitcoin, for instance, can accept the fees and put data on the chain, and then the network needs to support it forever. So the economic problem fundamentally there is someone can get paid today in exchange for work that somebody else needs to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the you know Bitcoin core, they don't have any solution to this. Satoshi doesn't have any solution to this. And if you read the white paper, he says, you know, well, the only problem, the only, the only solution is not to care how big the chain gets. And there is a solution actually, but the important thing is to recognize that the problem here is economic. Mm. Um, And the problem comes in part from this divorce between the people that get paid and the people that have to do the work. If you want to fix that problem, you need to pay the people who are actually doing the work. Um, And there's a secondary sub problem, which is uh, also in these kind of proof of stake and proof of work networks, which is that the people who are making the transactions, even if we want them to pay the proper amount, like even if we forget that there's this disconnect between the people that get the money and the people that are forced to do the work, the people who are paying the transaction fees, they don't even know what it should cost. Mm -hmm. If I'm making a Bitcoin payment, I mean, how do I know, uh, you know, we can do calculus, we can do derivatives and stuff, but essentially that transaction is on the chain in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And, what is the proper fee to pay for network service in, in perpetuity? Uh, we don't really know and we can't really calculate it. So that is the first big economic problem and Sato solves that. And the way Sato solves that is with the transient blockchain. And there's basically a set of techniques we use to, uh, it's an approach to data pruning, but it's an approach to data pruning that makes sure that old transactions also pay fees if they stay on the blockchain. Um, When we have a discussion with people, this is a controversial idea for a lot because people are propagandized by the media and also by a lot of people kind of politically coming out of the idea that blockchain is money, that, well, blockchain is sound money, you know, we need a permanent ledger, we can't have a transient ledger, and that's not true. So when we talk to people about the transient chain, the discussion really is getting, it's not really about Sato, it's about the fundamentals of blockchain itself. It's Mm -hmm. about what is security and how can a transient chain actually give us that. Um, And I'm happy to go into that here. It's a really interesting discussion. Um, A lot of the other mechanisms are for a second problem though, because they're basically two problems. So the first is that tragedy of the commons issue. The second problem, and we're going to talk about Bitcoin again because most people are aware of it. Um, The second problem happens because what you're doing in pretty much 99.9% of existing blockchains is we need to pay for the network. And so the fees are supposed to pay for the network. And how do we do that? 
Well, in Bitcoin, we take all of that money and we give it to miners. And what we're doing is we're incentivizing them to mine. And if you listen to the people who are uh, the best on the economics of Bitcoin, what they say is they say, well, the solution for the network long term is that the miners have to pay for the network. Yeah. Uh, so like if you listen to Craig Wright, uh, he's a controversial figure, but you know, he's very forceful about the miners pay for uh, the miners will pay for the network. And I'll say, well, yeah. look, you know, if they, if they don't pay for the network, they don't get paid. Therefore they have an incentive to pay for the network. And it sounds persuasive, but it's not actually true because mm. if you take a look at the incentive structures of proof of work, for instance, you can see that miners are incentivized to mine. Right. So, there are strong economic pressures that are pushing people into not paying for network equipment mm. and more specifically not paying for network equipment that does not give them a competitive advantage. So, um, and you know, this isn't obvious to people, but when you frame it in the economic perspective, we find it's easier for people to realize what's going on I see. Um, because you, you know, we, when we were meeting with people uh, to, to explain what Sato is, you know, a lot of people found this very challenging because they're like, well, nobody talks about this. And we say, well, uh, you know, think, think about it yourself. Uh, if you are Bitmain and uh, if you are altruistic, say, and you are subsidizing the peer-to-peer -peer network uh, and you take half of your money, let's say you need, we need Bitcoin to be running at a terabyte a day. Uh, that's going to cost Bitmain about half of its revenue. Now, if Bitmain is spending 50% of its revenue on things that do not directly drive profit, mm -hmm. what is a company like Bitfury going to do? Right. The, answer, the answer is that you're going to free ride on Bitmain, you're going to connect to their network, you're going to let them source and distribute transactions, and you're going to spend 100% of your revenue on mining because mm -hmm. you're incentivized not to spend money on the peer-to-peer -peer network, but instead on mining. And uh, one of the challenges people have as they, you know, thinking through this is Bitcoin is not operating at the kind of scale that Sato needs to operate at. Mm. So people can kind of even, you know, they're like, well, you know, is this really a problem with miners? You know, maybe miners will do it. And with Bitcoin, miners probably will do it. But when we're getting up to the level of actually trying to scale to move email onto a secure blockchain, um, there's, there's simply no way you can do it because you're not incentivizing people to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like what happens also, uh, a big issue is we want a decentralized network, but, you know, what happens when the block reward runs out? Um, in that kind of situation, if a company like Bitmain is going to spend on the peer-to-peer -peer network, it's going to spend sourcing transaction fees. And it's not going to take those transactions and share them with everyone else because otherwise other people will free ride on the network. So um, the starting point for understanding Sado is stepping back from seeing blockchain as a technical problem and realizing that, in fact, there are these two underlying economic problems that are, they're related. The tragedy of the commons problem is I can get payment today and someone else has to do the work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The free rider problem is I somebody else can provide the service today and I can get paid for that service. So it's, there's a fundamental uh, disconnect between who gets the money and who does the work. In the Bitcoin, in proof of work and proof of stake mechanisms, both of them, one that takes place at the same time, and that's the free rider problem, and one that takes place over time, and that's the tragedy of the commons problem.
And what Sado is, is it's a solution to both problems. And what that gives us, we can go into the details of the transient blockchain or proof of transactions if you like, but what it gives us is it gives us a network where, one, we pay the people who do the work. Um, we solve the free rider problem. It's not possible to free ride in Sado. Okay. Um, and the second thing though, is we also make sure if you're storing data on the chain, you're gonna pay to have data on the chain for as long as you need it. You can't, it's not like, in contrast, you can think of the Bitcoin system as like a pension for life. Mm -hmm. You pay two bucks and the network gives you a pension for life. With Sado, it's basically however much you contribute, you will get that much in pension. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a, uh, we move from like uh, defined benefits to defined contribution and that makes the blockchain more stable. Okay. So, um, you know, seen basically from the highest picture, what Sado is, it's, it's an argument that the people that are focused on scaling are focused on the wrong things. And the solution requires changing uh, the consensus mechanism and the way we handle data so that we can eliminate these economic problems that are causing the issues. Okay. And uh, basically that's the view from Orbit. Um, yeah. You have any questions or? Well, a lot. So let's, let's start with um, commenting on, on some of what you said would be controversial, right? Now I'm all ears. I'm curious about it. And I think that as it pertains to Bitcoin and the idea of something needed to be a permanent immutable ledger for the sake of sound mm -hmm. money, um, yeah. people will have some pretty strong and compelling arguments about that. And then when we talk about the actual use case being different for Sato though, and it's not intended to be you know, a financial type of solution so much as it is for you know, the purposes you've described on your site, whereas for large amounts of data, big data, yeah. social networks, payment channels. So it, is got, it does have that element to it, but you know, you're talking about all well, I mean, you know, what, what, we're, what we're talking about with the transient chain is actually fundamental. And we find one of the easiest ways for people to understand it is say, well, okay, uh, well, let's talk about this with regards to, with regards to Bitcoin. Okay. Um, because if people deal with it in the context of something they understand, it's easier for them to wade into, uh, wade into the underlying issues. Mm. I think one of the big issues people, people have is the blockchain space people think by virtue of analogy mm -hmm. and the analogies that they use come to control how they even embrace the ideas. So, I mean, if you'd like, I can take you through the transient chain stuff um, and we can talk a bit about why it's possible, how it's possible, uh, why people don't really think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because for us, it's the first thing people really latch onto because it kind of maps to something they understand. Um, we even had a meeting with a, a, a firm in China, which was investing uh, hundreds of millions in the blockchain. And we sat down with them and their first question was like, well, you know, tell us about this transient chain. And so we sat across from them. We learned by this point that uh, this is not a question about Sado. This is a question about blockchain. And so we said, well, we're happy to tell you about how it works. But, you know, this is a blockchain question. Why don't we start by you just tell us what you think? the arguments are for why Bitcoin needs a permanent ledger. Mm. And there yeah, were four of them in the a, room. An interesting footnote. Do you mind if before you go into that, I preface this? Yeah, no, go, go for it. Go for it. Okay. I think the listeners will get a kick out of this one. Uh, and the footnote in the white paper reads, the most resilient parasite of an idea in the blockchain community is the rarely challenged notion that blockchains require permanent ledgers. 
This is false. The purpose of a consensus mechanism is to allow the network to reach consensus about which tokens being added to the network have value. There's no need to guarantee that the value of the token persists into perpetuity. The only requirement from an economic perspective is that the token value must persist for long enough that network operators can liquidate or transfer the tokens so as to fund their operators. So now we go back to the situation in China with, with that in mind. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it was interesting for us because I mean, these people are, are quite smart um, mm-hmm. and they actually got what we were saying very quickly and agreed with us, but um, uh, it was interesting. Um, we ended up basically saying, well, look, I mean, we'll give you the arguments and then we can talk about it. Um, and the first argument, there, there are essentially three arguments um, and they're gonna get more and more sophisticated as we go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first argument is the one I think that most people superficially are aware of. They say, well, you know, like Bitcoin is sound money um, and it's got this tradition of sort of Austrian economics and, uh, you know, suspicious of uh, inflationary currencies. And they say, well, look, you know, because we're trying to be sound money, uh, we need a permanent ledger because we can't be throwing out this money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so people think permanent ledger because money and it is seductive. However, it's also, I mean, it's not persuasive because the argument is essentially like saying cats are mammals. Therefore, all mammals must be cats. The fact that, uh, you think about it, you know, people don't, people don't think about it, but uh, that's the argument. It's like, well, a blockchain can be built with a permanent ledger. So a blockchain can be a cat, but that doesn't mean that the data structure requires a permanent ledger. Um, one of the things that thinking about this stuff in, in depth and really working from first principles teaches you is, well, actually, there are interesting ways to reframe this. Um, Sado, for instance, we can offer permanent assets, but we do it on a transient chain, um, which is interesting. But that first argument, the sound money argument, basically, it, it's not valid. What it is when you run into it is people arguing by analogy. Now, uh, in the footnote you cited, we're starting to get to the second, a more sophisticated argument. Now, people can say, well, look, you say the blockchain's not money, but the blockchain does need to have value. The tokens need to have value because if the tokens don't have value, the network is not Mm self-supporting. And if the network is not self-supporting, it can't be censorship resistant and it can be centralized and controlled. And blockchain tokens have to have value because the people that are running the network should be getting the tokens and they need to be able to liquidate those tokens or exchange them in order to get the equipment, the resources or the services to continue running the network. Yeah. So there's a more sophisticated argument that says like, look, you don't like the sound gold money analogy, but it still needs to be money. Mm -hmm. And this is what we were driving in at that footnote, uh, which is, well, yes, it does need to be money, but it doesn't need to be money for 5,000 years. It doesn't need to be money for 10,000 years. And one of the questions we like to ask people is, how long does Bitcoin need to be guaranteed in value until we are like, how short can that be until we're willing to say, well, look, you know, this isn't valuable. And, you know, in the Chinese real estate bubble, which we're seeing face to face in Beijing, and mm-hmm. Shanghai and China, you know, the houses really, you've got, uh, you know, originally it was seven years, uh, biggest real estate bubble in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, with Bitcoin, you know, picture if Bitcoin was on a transient chain that lasted 100 years, 
What this would mean is if you want to keep your Bitcoin spendable, in sometime in year 99, if you haven't spent it yet, you need to spend it again. So it goes to the front of the chain. Because yeah. as soon as it goes to the front of the chain, then you've got another 100 years. So one question is, in this environment, would Bitcoin not be valuable? Would the people that are minting it and collecting it be unable to sell? And we, you know, what if it was a 50-year chain? What if it was a 20-year chain? With Sato, we're targeting a short genesis period because we need a short genesis period to get the throughput to do things like email and social networks. But conceptually, as a solution to the underlying economic problem, we believe that uh, networks like Bitcoin uh, will be graduating to some kind of data structure like this. You know, maybe not in the next five years, but certainly in the next 10 to 20. Um, okay. that, that's that's, that's the second argument. Do you, yeah. do you understand the... Uh, I do. Now we I, have, get, I get where you're coming from. And I think that... Um, it definitely, it seems sound. And if a person who's listening to it is very, very devoted to those kind of, say, Austrian economic principles or something, mm -hmm. you could still have a pretty compelling case for them. There is an well, element you can, of you irrational can, you belief in emulating gold. Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, uh, we don't know how permanent gold is in terms of a value. I mean, if we're going to be mining the asteroid belts and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> You know, I think one of the challenges people have often dealing with Sado is they do approach it from it's like, are you saying Bitcoin is bad? And are you saying that, you know, there are these things that are killing? It's like, no, it's not that at all. It's that, right. uh, you know, we're talking about what you need to do to get email on a blockchain. Right. And we can't do it if we are forced to keep data in perpetuity. So, you know, if people want uh, their, you know, sound money digital, by all means, use Bitcoin. Um, in fact, Sato is going to be helping Bitcoin a lot because we're going to be able to do things like really creative group payment channels, uh, things sending data on Sato that are going to support Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, that being said, we, we've given the first two. The third one is the really interesting case. Sure. Um, and it's the most sophisticated. And the third argument is basically that you need the Genesis hash for security. Mm. Because if you don't all start from the same block, uh, you know, it's easy for you to get a chain poisoning attack. How do you even know when to start? And it sounds like a sophisticated argument. Um, and it seems like a sophisticated argument, but it is wrong. Um, and the example we like to offer uh, to help people think this through is we like to give them a theoretical choice. We say, you've got a choice of two Bitcoin wallets. The first, you guarantee you are guaranteed that it contains the Genesis hash. Mm -hmm. But you don't know what the software does. Right. In fact, you're suspicious that the guy that wrote the software wants at your money. <laughs> now, in the second wallet, you cannot know the Genesis hash. There's that one restriction. However, you can trust that the software does exactly what you want it to do. So the question is really, where are you putting your trust? Are you putting your trust in the hash or are you putting your trust in the software which includes the hash? And we give people the choice. We say, look, it's your money. Which wallet would you rather use? Mm -hmm. And the answer is overwhelmingly, I want the, I want the wallet where the software is good. Right. Uh, and Basically, the cognitive trap people fall into is they think, well, it's a cryptographic hash. There's security in, in cryptography. The hash is secure. It's like, no, the hash is not secure. The security lies in the algorithm, which can use one hash to explore a chain of hashes. Right. So 
if you can corrupt the software in any sense, you can get forked and poisoned. If you, it, it's actually worse. I mean, if you can corrupt the, 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 the software that's monitoring which pool of nodes that you're connecting to, I mean, you can have the original hash and you can end up on a poison chain regardless. Right. Um, the, the observation Sato makes is, I mean, theoretically, Sato, we could keep the Genesis hash and just uh, provide people with like header hashes for them to verify however long the chain gets. We don't think you need it at all. We think basically when you were downloading a Bitcoin wallet, uh, a Sato wallet, you are implicitly making an act of trust in the person that's providing you with the software. Yeah. And as such, you can put your trust in them to give you one hash that is on the longest chain. Mm -hmm. And as long as you've got that one point that's on the longest chain, you can follow the chain forward and you can follow the chain backward as far in either direction as you can go. And you can verify for yourself that you are actually on the longest chain. Um, and in fact, we think SATA was more secure because it breaks assumptions that we shouldn't necessarily be making. Uh, when a SATO node sinks to the end of the chain, for instance, what we do is we create a, a cryptographic representation of all of the blocks that you've synced over the Genesis period, which is the length of the blocks you need to keep. And you share it with nodes in the network and you say, look, this is what I think the chain is. What do you think it is? Mm. And nodes can actually share that data so that, you know, if you're really paranoid, you can make sure that everyone you're dealing with is on the same network as you. Okay. So basically the three arguments, um, and you, you know, when, when we, when we talk to the people about this, one of the interesting things is we, it, it, it's become increasingly clear that, the problem is you really need to understand the problem and realize that, you know, if you just say, well, it's not sound money, so we don't need the permanent ledger, you still end up trapped by arguments about the Genesis hash. Uh, you really need to kind of be pushing people to think about this on a very fundamental level um, and pushing an ideological community that is sometimes resistant because they're like, well, what we want is money. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be challenging people on that because if people want sound money, that's fine. What we want to be doing is we want to be creating decentralized versions of that are perfectly secure for, you know, a Facebook you control, a Reddit that has decentralized moderation so you don't have one database controlling who's censoring speech, okay. um, an email system that you can modify. So right. that's basically the transient chain. And, okay. you know, Sato's implementation of it, uh, we do some creative things, um, but that's our solution fundamentally for how do you have a blockchain where if you are a transaction, uh, you're not gonna stay on the chain forever. Right. Uh, when you hit the end of the chain, basically, the software itself looks at you and it says, well, how much money is in that transaction? And if there is enough money in that transaction, it will automatically loop your transaction to the front of the chain. Mm. So if you've got data you want to stick on that blockchain, you can stick it on the blockchain and you can keep it on the blockchain as long as you want. But the fee that you're paying is not paid right up front. It's like a defined contribution. It's a, it's a defined benefits uh, pension where you pay the fee every time you loop through the network. And the reason this solves the problem is now we know how to price transactions because the market price you will pay for storing a transaction on chain in perpetuity is in fact, it's just the, you just add up the cost of all of the Genesis periods in the blockchain onto infinity. 
Okay, so uh, Sato solves that transaction pricing problem. It solves the tragedy of the commons problem. And the other thing it solves, if we're going back to that fundamental economic issue is, uh, we're no longer offloading costs into the future because we're offloading revenue into the future too. Mm -hmm. So the people that are getting paid are getting paid as they continue to support the network. Right. And if they drop out, uh, the people that join the network in the future will now be able to earn profits at the same rate. Yeah. So the transient chain fundamentally is a solution to that tragedy of the commons problem. Um, when people start thinking about it, actually real Bitcoiners, uh, the OG people, they tend to come over very quickly because they realize they've been, they're like, yeah, actually, this is possible. And there's a lot of fun things that are possible for old timers too. Like we like pointing out to people, we, we like giving them that question, like how do you keep a permanent ledger on a transient chain? Because people go, well, that's not possible. And then when they realize in fact that you can do this kind of rebroadcasting, yeah. uh, all of a sudden there's this realization that, well, wait a minute, the properties of the chain are not the properties of the assets on the chain. Mm -hmm. And we can actually use consensus level software to decide how we're actually treating things and taxing, taxing things. Um, the other really interesting things are things like, you know, with Bitcoin, you've got this coin reward, this block reward that's, that's halving every four years, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean, with something like Sato, what we do actually is we've got this reward, but we put it in a transaction that continues to loop around that chain. And what that lets us do is it lets us solve the inflation problem. Mm -hmm. Because we can say to the network, look, we don't know what transaction volume is going to be like in five years. Right. We don't know what it's going to be like in 10 years. Um, we, Sato actually needs to worry uh, for more complex reasons about how money gets into the system. And one of the things we can do with this mechanism is we can say, every time that transaction loops through the system, take a look at network usage and adjust the amount that's being bled out so that we can keep inflation constant right from the beginning. So there's a lot of fun, creative new things we can do with that. And that's... Uh, it's essentially half of the puzzle. And then the other half is how do you have a secure network where we don't have mining, where we don't just give all of the money to the miners or the stakers and expect that they're incentivized to support the network. And that's the proof of transaction mechanism. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. And you know, I think that that's going to give a lot to think about. And that's really just part of it. You know, as you said, it's, it's half of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's also, I think, the easier part for people to grasp because mm -hmm you can apply it in Bitcoin. You can say, well, you know, what would Bitcoin look like if we had Bitcoin on a hundred year transient chain? Mm -hmm. What if Bitcoin was a 20 year transient chain? Uh, would we use it? At what point does this become problematic? What are the issues that we, we think will emerge with this? Yeah. It's more accessible. You know? Accessible. And can you give us a high level overview of the other half then? So we can kind of get a sense of the whole picture and sure, I'm sure it'll still have a lot to, to chew on and people can read the white paper and contact you, but I do want to get the full picture. So tell us about that other half. Sure. Um, for the other half, let me step back and tell you what the problem is. Mm -hmm. um, we've already identified that there are these free rider pressures. Okay. Right. And the way to solve the free rider pressure mm -hmm. is to remove that wedge between stuff I'm supposed to do and stuff I'm getting paid to do. Mm -hmm. Now, Bitcoin's got it because I'm getting paid for mining, but we want me to uh, be doing all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one idea we like to throw out to people is the idea that like header only mining in Bitcoin is in fact, it's an attack on the network because you're focusing all your effort on the stuff you're paid to do, but you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Now, in any network where you have that split, 
you are providing people with the opportunity to take advantage of the network and the money issuing mechanism by sticking themselves in the center, focusing on what they're supposed to do, focusing on what they're being paid to do and not doing what we need them to do. Mm -hmm. And the solution for this is, well, we need to pay people to run the network. You need to be, it's moving data around that is really what we want people to do. Mm -hmm. and traditionally, this kind of gets us into the, the real fundamentals of, well, what is proof of work? What is proof of stake? And the reason we have proof of work and proof of stake is that historically mining and staking are the two activities that meet the security criteria for a blockchain. Mm -hmm. And what this means is it means we need to be able to measure how much work people are doing. Okay. And we need to be able to pay them in proportion to the amount of work that they've done. We can do this with mining and we can do it with staking. With mining, it's because if you find a block, we can into it that you must have uh, done this and you must have burned this amount of energy. With staking, it's because we have a ledger and we can see it. Right. Um, traditionally, the problem is, well, why don't we just pay for network operations? And the answer is, it's really hard to measure. Yeah. It's kind of like, if we've got a subsidy for networking and a lot of the scaling projects, which we think are moving in the wrong direction, they're the, because they think it's a technical problem, they're thinking, what technical solution can I have to create a, a subsidy for bandwidth? Mm -hmm. And their solutions overwhelmingly are basically either you have to privatize the network or you need to pick a small number of nodes that are eligible for payment. Mm. Uh, Sado doesn't do that. Um, that's actually a direct outgrowth of the free rider problem. If you understand the economics, you understand the solution to the free rider problem is privatizing the network. And the technical solutions people are stumbling into is, well, we're going to privatize the network. Sato is very different. Sato says we can solve the problem not by privatizing the network and picking who gets paid, but by paying people for the work they need to do. Mm -hmm. And in order for this to happen, basically we have to create a system that is able to measure the amount of value that you are contributing to the network okay. and pay you in proportion to that value. And basically this, this dichotomy between I get paid for A, but I'm really supposed to be doing B disappears in Sado. And we talk about value because if you don't talk about value, you're basically, you do open civil attacks on the network. But what we start doing is we use, uh, we use crypto cryptographic techniques like uh, signed signatures, cryptographically signing transactions as they go through the network to measure who is bringing these transactions in from the edge towards the core routing nodes. Okay. And the people in the network who move the transactions in are the ones that get paid. They get paid a routing fee. And then the nodes in the network that are making blocks that are doing validation they also get paid and both of those nodes get paid in proportion to the value of the transaction fees that they are bringing to the network. Okay. And the result of this is we can identify who the valuable nodes are in the routing network because they're bringing us money mm. and we can identify the valuable nodes that are taking those transactions and putting them into blocks because, well, if you're making blocks that have a lot of fees in them, that's hard work. So right. all of a sudden, we're no longer using mining. We're no longer using staking. Uh, we're turning the operations of the network moving data into something that we can measure. And because we can measure it, we can all of a sudden say, look, we know who's doing the work. 
we know how much value there is uh, to be uh, who's doing relative amounts of value. And so we can identify who needs to be paid and we can pay for it. Right. And the more difficult problems basically boil down to that's basically proof of transactions. Um, and the complicated mechanisms like the golden ticket, they're not really complicated, but they're solving more. Uh, they're basically making the network uh, secure against attack. Okay. Um, and we, we can get into that if you need to, but the, the fundamental idea of proof of transactions is let's not use mining, let's not use staking, let's measure the work the network needs to do. Okay. And so it's incentivizing again, you know, the efficient and having people, rather than thinking, how do we mine more? They're thinking, how do we more efficiently move large amounts of data? How do I more efficiently source transactions, right? Because the network doesn't even care about moving data. It cares about, am I able to pay for the network? So mm. Sato is, the people in the network are ruthlessly focused on getting the network paid. Okay. Um, so there's no mining in Sato. If you want to make money in proof of transactions, the way to make money is find people who want to use the network and give them a node they can connect to. Okay. Uh, or create a service that runs on the network that you can then originate transactions from. And uh, basically, the more data you move, you know, it's, it's the value of the transaction fees. If you're moving one transaction that is it's just paying a ridiculously high fee, like yeah. let's say someone in China, they need to walk this transaction across the border. So, you know, but someone in New Jersey, like, you know, it costs them a fraction of a penny. You know, that transaction that was walked over the border is, is much more valuable to the network than the guy who's got an easy connection. Sure. So one, there are a lot of nice features like Sato actually, uh, the profits go to war. It's market driven. The profits go to the people that are deploying infrastructure in areas where fees are highest. Hmm. So the network topography even starts responding to, you know, who is willing to pay to use the network. Okay. So, you know, let's go high level with this again and give me a hypothetical or a current example, although I know you haven't quite deployed it fully yet. So give me a hypothetical where someone is going to go and they're going to set up a project, an ideal corporate partner or somebody who's going to say, Hey, look, I really like this idea and I want yeah. to try to participate. What does that look like? Uh, well, um, the first thing is that applications that are developed on Sato are, it's basically web programming. Mm -hmm. If you can write in JavaScript, you can build a Sato application. Cool. Um, the, the impact that this has for development is if you look at like Bitcoin, you run the Bitcoin node, and then you've got this whole other layer of moving data into a Bitcoin transaction and out of a Bitcoin transaction. And there's like a tiny space of data you can use that you can put information in. In Sato, we've got this massive amount of space. And what uh, a Sato node basically does is it says, if you're building an application, what the application does is when it needs to send data, it puts data into a transaction and it sends that transaction across the network. Yeah. So if you want your transaction to have one megabyte of information, that's fine. Sure. Uh, if you want your transaction to have 50 megabytes of information, that's fine. Uh, you'll be charged in proportion to the, the data that you use. But, I mean, we're talking about terabyte levels of data. Uh, you know, the space is available. We're not concerned about having to store this stuff for 5,000 years. Mm -hmm. um, so what you get is you get applications that start sitting atop the network. So for the average user, for instance, they're going to, their browser basically is gonna become their Sato wallet. And uh, we've got a Facebook demo, for instance, which shows how you basically replace something like Facebook. 
Um, and Facebook and Google both. I mean, people are concerned about centralized data services. Those days are going to be over. Um, you know, your browser connects to the network. What's Facebook? Facebook is if I send a post, it's like sending a transaction out onto the blockchain. And all of my friends that are following me are going to be listening for Facebook transactions that are coming from my account. Mm. And it's like the transactions arrive in their wallet and their wallet's the browser. And when they visit Facebook, they're going to see all of the data that's in the transactions that have been sent will show up and they'll say, oh, this is what David did uh, or this is what Colton did. Sure. So it's kind of like, you know, sending Bitcoin money, but now you're sending a status post or you're sending an email. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of social web. There's a lot of really interesting, like really fundamentally important uh, tools. Like we can use a blockchain now for secure key encryption, mm -hmm. not only between two individuals, but we can all of a sudden, we all of a sudden we can do like a Diffie home and key exchange with groups. So we can have 10 people who are able to securely communicate. And there's no man in the middle attack on this because the initial key exchange happens over the blockchain. And, you know, if you've got an improvement or you want to integrate this in Facebook, if you want, you know, plain text Facebook, you can. If you want to be encrypting all of your data, you can as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of, you know, basically with scalability, we also start getting network effects. So, um, you know, one of the things we're building as a default application is an advertising network that runs on Sato. Oh. And what happens is when you view Facebook, it's going to show, uh, it shows an advertisement at like the top right. Okay. And it's interesting how, how people are kind of cultured to the current internet because nobody says that's, that's kind of weird because it would be weird if we had advertising in a Bitcoin wallet, right? People would be like, where's that ad coming from? Uh, but here we've got something, it looks like Facebook and people are like, oh, well, of course there's an advertisement. Right. And we say, well, where's it coming from? And they, and they go, what? It's coming from the Facebook servers. And we're like, no. There's no Facebook, like the entire Facebook company has disappeared in this model of the internet. And they go, well, it's coming from Facebook. And we're like, well, no, the company doesn't exist. Um, what you do is you've got your browser. If you want to view ads, you install a piece of software that chooses which advertiser gets to show you advertisements on any web page. Hmm. So the, the entire business model of Facebook and Google Silicon Valley, it's like 50% of what they do is let's build a, a well of content we can control and let's try to wrap our own advertising network around it. Yeah. Now, what we're going to deliver is just ripping those two apart. So, you know, Facebook advertising might survive, but it's going to be forced to compete directly with Google AdSense and any other niche advertising company that can monetize people's attention. So, you know, for early crypto adopters, they're probably going to install a crypto advertising network. Right. Uh, and, you know, I install it, I'll, I'll see what the ICOs are, I'll get advertisements about crypto services, and in exchange that advertising company, it will send me the tokens that I need to use to use the internet. Right. So even structurally, the way that uh, people will interact with Sato, it's not primarily going to be as like, I'm going out to buy gold. It's basically going to be, I'm going to start using Sato Facebook. I'm going to start using Sato email. I'm going to start using Sato Reddit. And tokens are literally just going to start building up in, in my account. Okay. And as we get a commercial network, I mean, how do you pay for things? Maybe you pay your ISP with them. Maybe your ISP gives you free service because you're using their connection to make Sato transactions. And mm. that's how they make money. So it, 
it upends the entire notion of what it actually means to have a decentralized application. Um, okay. But the key to that is the key to that scale. And that's why it's really important that we, we solve those two fundamental problems. Okay. So if somebody wanted to work on something like this, like you said, from a technical perspective, the skill set required is not so out of reach, but from uh, conceptually, they need to basically understand the kind of problems you presented and the ways that Sato addresses those and start reimagining how to do things that we take for granted now. Um, for, for first, a, they yeah. can't just go buy some hardware and start mining it. And you know, it's, it's Well, I mean, if you're, if you're a dev, you don't need to, right? Like you don't need to be running a node to have an application. Um, we're also going to be replacing app stores. But um, if you want to build an application on Sato, mm -hmm. um, we've got a system and a way of doing it. Uh, people who visit our email client, for instance, um, you can build an application if you can read JavaScript. Mm -hmm. There are two functions you need to edit, and that allows you to put an application right inside the email inbox of anyone who installs your application. Okay. So two functions is enough to build a full-fledged Sato application. It's like building an application that lives inside Gmail. Right. So, you know, you can also build standalone Facebook, standalone Reddit. We've got code people can look at, but um, the level of sophistication needed for this is if someone can code JavaScript. Okay, good to know. Basically, every single web developer will be able to do this. That certainly makes it accessible, and uh, I can see that that's quite exciting for people. And a lot of the people that will be listening to this, um, they're interested in deal making. That's kind of what we focus on. So if it's acquisitions, funding, um, joint ventures, partnerships that have happened in this space. So, you know, what you're describing, the fact that it, it has broad application and it's relatively accessible for people that even have a web development background, um, that's, that's certainly an interesting fact. And I'd imagine that that had some impact on how you were able to success, successfully raise a $2 million seed round this summer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that was a private raise in contrast to the very hype-driven ICO fundraising model that we saw earlier this yeah. year and late last year. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we, we, need, we knew we needed to raise cash to get to production. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't want to do an ICO because uh, Sato is difficult for people to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't want to participate in something that was kind of, you know, super hyped and we're selling something and people don't know. They don't know the risk, but they also don't understand the technology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, at some point we will probably do a token sale, but we're going to do it when the network is at production. If we do it, uh, there's a ton of applications out there and people are using it. Mm -hmm. um, and the people that should be participating are people that want to actually be doing kind of infrastructure level deployment on Sato because that's how you're going to get, that's how you're going to get the stuff. Right. In terms of the, the fundraise, I mean, do you have any specific questions? The, it was a long process uh, and we kind of had to navigate a lot of the uncertainties around like lawyers are giving us conflicting advice and people in the industry are giving us conflicting advice. Yeah. Uh, what it basically boiled down to was um, we had essentially uh, an all China raise. And the reason for that is if we had a meeting with people, we had a conversation, we showed them what we were doing and we talked to them about blockchain. And at the end of the day, they were like, yes, this makes sense. This is great. Uh, I'm in. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a couple of other people who'd approach us from outside China. Uh, and it was much more of a sort of, 
a sense of like speculative ICO stuff, like their first questions would be like, when's the public sale? And we'd be like, we're focused on building the network, you know? Um, in terms of what you're thinking and talking about for like deal making, um, I think the commercial opportunities for people will be coming in about a year. Okay. Uh, and so people should be keeping their eye on our project because what we're going to be doing is disrupting the business model of anyone who's relying on locking advertising to content. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of businesses that are centralized and people don't think they can compete with them, that's going to, that's going to, it's going to be open season on those businesses. Um, you know, our organization, we're focused on producing the code. It's going to be open source. Yeah. Um, we are not going to be running those businesses. Uh, so we are looking for people to partnership with to like to run the advertising network. You know, that's not something that the organization producing the code should do. Okay. Um, there are a lot of examples like that. Like DNS is also something we don't want to be running. Mm -hmm. um, do, I mean, do you have any specific questions about the fundraise process? Sure. You know, the, what you just described, first of all, that's helpful, you know, and that's because it says something about sort of the way that you see things ethically and philosophically, like that you think the company that is developing the code should not be controlling the different businesses that are using technology you're building. And that's interesting. Yeah. As for the actual process of the fundraise, I mean, you said you got some conflicting advice from lawyers. You had an interesting mix of people that approached you from inside and outside of China. What's the yeah. number one piece of advice having gone through that, that you'd give somebody if they're trying to decide between an ICO type of thing or an STO or doing a private placement that is, you know, much more, you know, slower, more drawn out and careful. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that was most surprising for me about the ICO, uh, I don't want to, it's not an ICO, um, about the, the equity versus tokens question is really interesting because something I was not expecting is that people value the tokens more than they value the equity. Mm. Um, at least when we were starting, but I think also, you know, I hear that in Europe right now, a lot of people are, it's, it's equity, equity, it's, it's not tokens, but, um, you know, you, you can't go with a double approach and say, well, is it, you know, we're gonna, we're happy to give you equity or we're happy to give you tokens because people are kind of expecting you to take the lead on that. Mm. Um, but there was a huge difference. I mean, when we were looking at it, it was like, uh, if we had raised with equity, uh, it would probably have been at about a third the valuation. So it would have been much more expensive and it also would have been trammeled the project. Mm. Um, so, I mean, if you can raise on tokens, that's great. Uh, you know, the conflicting legal advice we were hearing is, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty over like even things like what constitutes an ICO, um, you know, uh, like if we're, if we're compensating someone in tokens, is that an ICO or is that a private sale? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how to legally structure that agreement. Um, I'm assuming this stuff is going to standardize. Uh, it was, it was a bit difficult kind of walking through that because, you know, things would kind of change every week or two weeks. And, yeah. you know, the, I think like the lawyers that were saying, oh, we're blockchain people, the reality is they didn't really, they didn't really know as much as you know, if you're in the crypto space. Right. And so, you know, uh, we ended up really having to take charge and say, look, uh, tell us the issues and we'll tell you how we feel comfortable dealing with them. Okay. Um, so, you know, equity versus tokens, I think is a big thing. Um, in terms of describing things to people, 
the most important shift is like in this conversation, we kind of had a little bit of a deep dive on the problems. Mm -hmm. Like it was a little bit technical. Um, we didn't really get into like, what's the golden ticket, but like we stepped back and we said, look, you got to understand the economic problems to understand SATA. And that was the approach we took when we started talking to people. And we did it because we felt that real Bitcoiners, people who understand blockchain, when they see the solution, the need for the solution becomes obvious. Mm. And what surprised us is that worked with people who were really good on crypto. And what I mean by that is people who've been in the space since like 2010, 2013. Um, I think there's a line somewhere around 2016, 17, where, you know, people are describing themselves as crypto people, but they, they don't even understand what, what it is. Right. Um, anyone who's an old school kind of in the industry, we could have that conversation with them. You know, we could actually talk about, look, here are the problems, here's the solution, here's how to understand the trade-offs that are being made. Um, When we get an introduction to, like, uh, somebody who's new to crypto or someone who's not exposed to the debate, they wouldn't understand it and it would be the wrong way to approach them. Mm -hmm. And the right way to approach them would be more saying, look, here's the application, but we need to talk to your tech guys because for people like that, it's the, you know, if the tech guys got excited, then it was essentially done. Yeah. They themselves, like they, they wouldn't even, you know, you're trying to talk to them on a level that they're not able to deal with. And uh, it's, it's confusing to someone if you're trying to give them a deep dive on actual blockchain and their understanding of it is like, but, but, but digital gold, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, maybe know who you're talking to too. Like, we had to tweak our message to like, uh, you know, there's the entire Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Core debate, and depending on where someone was on that spectrum, it's like you kind of have to. We, we'd have to tweak our messaging so people know that it's like, look, we're not attacking what you're doing. We're trying to do something different. Um, right. And people were a lot more open to thinking about the problems as we're outlining them when they realize that it's like, we're not trying to build something to replace what you love. Um, we're trying to do something that's actually fundamentally different. And okay. I, I think that was a, a, a key, it was something that pushed us forward in being able to deal with people well. Right, so the common thread that I'm picking up from all that is essentially know your audience and present the ideas in a way that's gonna make it easy for them to digest because it's easy to get overwhelmed and it's easy to get taken in by hype and then you end up with the wrong kind of investors where you end up with people who, who don't really get what you're doing that are going to take an yeah. aggressive stance toward it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, uh, yeah, your basic, your 10 second version sounds better than mine. <laughs> well, I'm just, <laughs> just uh, making sure that I understood and, you know, and I appreciate you kind of digging into some of it, even though it was higher level because, you know, we only have about an hour. I still wanted to really understand the problems because as I read mm-hmm. the white paper and I checked out your project online, uh, I got to understand like, oh, okay, this isn't just another kind of gimmicky thing built on top of yeah. Ethereum. Like this is a pretty foundational reimagining of how to do things yeah. for a certain purpose or set of purposes. So we, we like to, oh, go ahead. Yeah, we, we, like to, we like to think of it as simplifying the problem set. Um, you know, one of the things that's happening with scaling is you take a look at all of these new projects coming out and they're like, well, we're this and 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 it's all combined and we're uh, sharding and we have like a voting mechanism. We've got this and that. And 
um, because people aren't thinking about things on a fundamental perspective, like, well, the problems are still there. They're just being kind of half-assed on a bunch of different levels. Yeah. Um, you know, Sado is, uh, it's simpler. Uh, we had this wonderful chart and you, again, it was dealing with people who are not technical. I think it ties into that where they would be approaching us and they'd be thinking like, where do you fall on this spectrum of adding additional complexity? And eventually uh, Richard uh, had the idea of actually making a graph that showed people and it's like, actually we're moving left and down if you're taking a look at the chart, you know, like we're stripping away the difference between what you're supposed to do and what you're getting paid for. Um, you know, we're making sure that you can't, you know, you can't take money today and run away. We're making sure you're paying for exactly what you're getting. Um, yeah. and yeah, I think that helped too. That's the other, other good piece of advice is play poker with Bitcoin people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, literally our, our, our poker crew. No, I mean, it's, it's the OG people, you know, like, yeah. People you know from Bitcoin way back, us were like people we do in poker. And, uh, you know, so they're the ones that we go to to talk about the ideas first. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, I know this guy. And you get that bit of a warm intro. Um, right. But you get it from people who actually are qualified to make the introduction because they'll say something like, you know, like Sado is, it takes time to understand because it's, it's different. And, um, you know, if someone was like, look, you got to give them 20 minutes to 30 minutes, uh, they, you know, it's not a five minute elevator pitch. Um, right. And that's, that would be really productive because at the end of it, they'd go, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, let's, how do we help? Right. Um, with poker, you know? Hmm. Gotcha. And it's a kind of, um, it reminds me of if you if you're get sucked into a debate, which sucks usually, hmm. and people get really hung up on the finer points and the, the presuppositions, the premises of the arguments get yeah. left 15, 20 minutes prior. And so you're all arguing about these tangential ideas and what somebody yeah. might have said or interpreted wrong two steps ago yeah. when the very basis of the argument got left behind 30 steps ago. And so you're trying yeah. to find people who are with you understanding each step along the way and get them 25, 30 steps ago and say, can we yeah. talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we had one lovely moment. It was in a bar in Hong Kong where a friend of the project who's involved with uh, uh, he's involved with one of the exchanges. And so, I mean, he knows what's going on. He put his head in his hands. He's like, you know, I just love what you guys are doing. I just don't know how we explain it to anyone. Um, and, you know, it's kind of ironic. We had this twisting point halfway through because we had like a 30 page PowerPoint presentation and it was like, look guys, Sato's not Bitcoin, you know, and we're trying to explain to them what's different about it because, you know, I was thinking like, look, as soon as people understand how it works, their, their mind is going to be blown. Um, you know, like one of the things we do, basically the, 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 the trick that pulls the golden ticket mechanism together is, um, we basically throw the fees in the center of the table and we make people fight for it. Mm. Um, and that's how we actually balance the economic incentives because if one group gets too powerful, you know, two other people can kind of team up and pull some money back. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, before that we were trying to, you know, 30 page presentation, trying to explain how it works. And I walked away from that and think, look, you know, if the people that love us, um, are having this issue thinking about how to explain it. And it was a turning point, I think for us in dealing with people, because, uh, what we did is we produced a 10 page version of the PPT that was like, Sato is Bitcoin. <laughs> so we reversed our, we reversed our message 180 degrees. Um, 
And the goal was just like, look, you know, we know you like Bitcoin. We like Bitcoin too. Like, don't perceive us as attacking it. What we're trying to do is we're trying to do a version of Bitcoin that brings the benefits of this kind of network to something that's totally different. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, maybe that's useful, relating it to things that people like and understand. But, uh, you know, it was uh, it, it still to this day, it's, it strikes me as very interesting that we, uh, we went from Sato is not Bitcoin to Sato is Bitcoin. Yeah. And it was the same, it was the same content in the, in the slide, you know. That's an interesting uh, twist and kind of how you can communicate with people by rather than going against their preconceived notions, just like playing yeah. along with it. And it is yeah. a bit of a challenge to, to understand. I'm not going to lie. I don't understand the, okay. See, if I read a white paper, I understand most mm-hmm. of it, yeah, the concepts. When I start seeing some fairly interesting mathematical <laughs> presentations yeah. of it, I'm like, that part seems interesting. I'll come back to that later. It's just, yeah. I started cheating in calculus in high school. You know, so. I mean, I'm, we're, we're actually conditioned as a result of this pro- process. Whenever we see someone do that, we get very suspicious um, yeah. because it's overwhelmingly glossing over a fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, without delving too deeply into Sato, let me, let me give you an example. Like our white paper is 3.5 pages. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the shortest white papers out there. Uh, the reason for that is we're not showing an ICO. Uh, we're not asking people to give us money. We want to actually make it clear to people what we're doing because what we need is we need people to spend the time looking at what we're doing, yeah. uh, realizing that we're right and being like, this is a chance for us to change the world. Yeah. Um, but like one, one example, um, which ties to the free rider problem, you know, earlier on I mentioned that what we need to do is we need to pay people who do work in the network, yeah. not the people that are producing blocks. One fundamental thing you need to do in order to do this is you need to separate the money from the production of the blocks. Okay. This is where this vulnerability is coming in. Because if you just give all of the money to the person that makes the blocks, you're incentivizing whatever it takes to produce a block. Sure. You're not incentivizing the network. And so we basically we collect the data on who's doing the relevant work. And then we basically hold a lottery. And this is the golden ticket. It's part of it. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We're having a big lottery, and the number of tickets you have basically depends on how much work that you've done. Sure. You know, the reason you need to do this is because the lottery has to be separate from producing a block. Otherwise, the person that is producing the block can cheat. Mm. And, you know, uh, we look at people and projects like Ethereum where they're like, well, they're getting caught up in terms of they know they need to pay for storage. They know they need to pay for bandwidth. But how do you do it? Because the only random variables they have are coming out of the guy producing the block. It's the block hash. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you say, well, we're going to use data in the block to give money to these other people, the person who's producing the block is now setting up a bunch of fake nodes and it's brute forcing its way to try to give all of the money to itself. Mm. So there are all of these security problems involved in something like this. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, getting back to this, you've got to separate the block reward. It's a very basic concept. Yeah. Um, but it's a basic concept that people aren't focused on because they're like, well, it's what we need to do is we need to technically improve proof of work or we need to find some really elaborate way of carving out money and giving it like overwhelmingly the solutions in the space right now are let's figure out a way to elect people that we can pay, mm. which basically means let's figure out how to create a governance voting system that people can cheat. 
<laughs> Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, there, there are better and worse ways of doing it, but it's, uh, you know, we say that's not the solution. The solution is actually to pay the people to do the actual work and preserve openness of the system. But, you know, like you were saying, it's not, um, it's not algorithmic, you know, uh, understanding why this step matters is much more about understanding what the actual problem is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, that's, that's a good point. I, I'd say that, as you were mentioning, there's a fundamental understanding of a few different topics that a person kind of has to have in order to really appreciate what you're doing. Um, fortunately, I was able to get through your white paper without being hung up on any mathematical issues, but I can admit going back to reading just the original yeah. Bitcoin white paper, there's a section in there where yeah. it's like, that looks like a test I failed, you know, and unfortunately that's a case and I can go back and learn that stuff. Sure. But yeah. well, I can I still mean, understand the rest of it. Like you can see like it, we, this is important. We, we've, We've got them, but they're embedded basically in supply and demand curves because SATA was an economic solution. Um, you know, like we can, we can guarantee, for instance, that the attacker needs to attack the network. What you need to do is you need to spend money. Yeah. Um, but you need to spend more money than the rest of the network combined. Uh, we can guarantee this and, you know, you would display it actually in graphical form in the form of an economics curve. You know, we could have done this with a lot of confusing, uh, you know, algorithms and equations and stuff. But, you know, why bother with that? You don't need it. Um, you know, we see a lot of white papers in China, especially where, like, you know, they, they, they include the algorithms because they want to scam people out of money and they want people to think that it's technically complex. And so it's not technically complex. It's just, you know, the white paper is made for consumption. Um, we had someone comment, we sent them the white paper and they're like, my God, this is actually a white paper. It tells me what you're doing, uh, which is ironic. Like in the crypto space, we're all conditioned to think that, you know, a white paper is a marketing tool. Right. And originally it's a document that's designed to tell you how to do something. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting uh, difference. I had for a long time, I was interested in kind of information security space and I, I didn't yeah. do a whole lot professionally there, but it was more of a personal interest. and mm -hmm. The white papers in that regard, uh, at least at the time that I was looking at them, they're mm. fairly dry, fairly explanation. You know, this is this is what it does. This is why it does it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you want to do X, this is the solution. You know. Right. Yeah. And then when I started yeah. getting into this kind of blockchain economy stuff again, after ignoring it for years, like I said, 2013, mm. 14 would be the latest I was really spending yeah. anything. I was spending Bitcoin, Litecoin, and I just said, you know, screw it. I'm going to go stop paying attention for a while. Um, I lost hard drives, whatever. And then getting back into it, I'm like, oh, I'll grab this white paper. And it's just full of graphics. And I'm talking about the, yeah. the wonderful opportunities. I'm like, this is a promotion. There was, yeah, there was, one, there was one I saw. It blew my mind. It was, it was I think it was, um, I, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it by okay. telling you their name, but it was, like, you know, I don't want to tell on them basically. Right. But I'm reading the white paper and, you know, cause like people, someone sends you a white paper and you're kind of like, well, maybe I should read this, you know? And I, I was kind of skimming and it's like, okay, I know what it's doing. I know what it's doing. Cause you know, the problem sets and the approaches people are taking. And I hit the middle and they're like, this section redacted. Like you're redacting a white paper. Like what the hell? Like just don't, <laughs> It's basically, they said, you know, it's the full opposite of what the white paper should be because it's like, well, you know, we're not actually going to tell you the solution. We're just going to include, we're just going to include the pure marketing material. Oh man. And white paper, black box. All right. That's yeah. Wonderful. 
but you, you know, we, we, we are going to get away from that. Um, yeah. cause like my impression with the, like the serious Bitcoin people and crypto people in China, at least is, um, you know, they've kind of had their fun with complex projects and people are hungry for actual things that make a difference. And that's where we're going to be moving in the next couple of years, I think as a community. Um, I'm just hoping that this, like this BTC BCH, uh, rift doesn't just like scatter the community into a, you know, a thousand pieces because you yeah. know, we're going to need cohesion for what's coming next. So it, yeah, it makes for interesting YouTube videos, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, Okay, so on that note, I want to ask you one of the, the, the questions we ask everybody so far, and we'll continue. Your favorite deal story. So if it was a, a negotiation, uh, something that almost fell apart, um, some serendipitous opportunity, your favorite story involving closing a deal, making a deal, or solving a problem? Uh, I mean, it's probably not going to be sexy as your deal-raising story. My favorite is... Um, we had a guy who came in and helped us advising us on fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, and it's mostly, it's mostly making like warm intros and helping us understand what people are thinking. And uh, you know, the first time we presented it to him, he got excited. He's like, Oh wow, this is fantastic. And so he kind of would arrange for us to talk to other people. And whenever he was there, he would say, oh, you know, that's great guys. I understand Sato like 25% more. <laughs> and then you know the third time he's like yeah you know i i understand it 25 percent more the fourth time he's like i understand 25 percent more this is gonna change the world and and richard my co-founder leaned over to me he's like david what the hell did you say to him the first time <laughs> um, and you know i think it's just it's luck a lot of it in terms of who you deal with and right. uh, finding people who you know if you've got a good project finding people who approach it with the sincerity that you do you know right um, yeah. So anyway, I mean, thanks a lot for your time today, Colton. I hope that. Uh, oh, that's an amusing story. You know, it is amusing because he kind of lost track of his uh, his math. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're like, you know, we we like literally thinking back, and we're like, you know, he was getting he. I think it's I think it's because it starts with intuition. Yeah. For a lot of people, yeah. and then maybe it's that's general to most projects that like it's tough to see the details the first time you see some things. But, yeah, uh, yeah we, well, it worked we out this was in the end. Yeah. It worked yeah. out for you guys. Yeah. That's good. Any final words of wisdom on a topic of scalable blockchain tech or the kind of problems that you mentioned before? Anything to leave the listeners with? Um, I mean, I just, uh, we think of Sato as a third kind of blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'd like to leave people with, I guess, is just the idea that this stuff is coming mm -hmm. and that, uh, you know, Blockchains are not just a form of digital money. What they are is they're a PKI network, a cryptographic network that can move data at scale. And, you know, the revolution really is just starting and it's going to be a fun couple of decades as we play this stuff out. Awesome. That sounds uh, very, very interesting. I'm sure that that'll leave people something to think about and so much information in this, uh, in this episode. And I really appreciate you taking the time to explain those concepts. So, where can people connect with you if they're interested in learning more about how Sato can help them, how they can help you guys, anything like that? Where can they find you? Sure. Uh, our website is sato.tech, S-A-I-T-O dot T-E-C-H. Um, we've got our contact info there. Uh, there are demos of the network. Uh, we're going to be moving to live testnet later this year. So 
uh, people can drop by and they can build some demo apps and deploy them live on the network. Um, things should be ready for general public use by December. So if anyone is interested, please do just visit our site, check it, check it out, and our contact info is all on there as well. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, David Lancashire, Sado.tech. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pendulum Insight Podcast. If you learned something today and you want to know more, go check out PendulumInsight.com.